0: Okay, hi. Hello, everybody. Why don't we get started? This is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you uh, from Thornhill, Ontario at the Bayit for webyeshiva.org. We are studying um, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, the Rambam's of um, and we are using the uh, Shlomo Pines translation uh, that has been around for quite a long time. I understand that there is a new translation hopefully coming out this summer. We're look, very much uh, looking forward to uh, to seeing it and hopefully gaining much from it. But in the meantime, the Shlomo Pines edition is really, really very, very helpful. Um, we are uh, approaching the end of a section of discussions um, that the Rambam has engaged in at the first part of the third section of the guide. And that is all about divine providence the whole issue of theodicy of why bad things happen to good people and how God arranges for this to be so, even at the same time, being a completely just God, and um, uh, the topic of our discussion today is the term test or in, in Hebrew nisayon. What does it mean when God tests an individual? The um, the uh, difficulty in the idea of being tested by God is inherent to be tested by God implies that the individual has done nothing wrong but is rather facing adversity because God wishes to test the individual now normally when I test you I do so because I want to be able to um, understand how much you know and, and how much you're capable of um but God already knows how much a person knows and how much a person is capable of in their devotion or in their fear of God or in their love of God. So why should a test be necessary? This is the traditional question and the Rambam is going to answer this question in his unique way. I would like, however, to point out the, the context just to get our bearings as far as where we are in this discussion in the guide. And in order to do that, I'm going to share the handout as i try to do every week where we sort of try to break down uh the chapter uh in a way that is uh, understandable to the reader um uh, for those of you who are watching this is on your screen if you're listening to an audio version of this she'er, you can always download the outline for every she'er in one of two places one is in the facebook group she in morena and we encourage everyone to join that um, we we only bother you about once a week with that uh, we, you know with posts from that from that group, and then the other um, the other place where you can uh, uh, find a download of this handout is in the course description on webushiva.org for this course. So the background is that um, uh, our previous chapter chapter twenty three, which was an analysis of the book of Job, in trying to understand the different opinions as to why uh, people suffer in this world, Um, and really was a reference back to chapter 17. The Rambam had cited an opinion that he had attributed to the Mutazilite philosophers, which was aligned with Job's friend Bildad in the book of Job, that God's wisdom dictates that some people should have an increased reward in the next world, and as such, they undergo suffering for no reason other than to increase other to increase their reward in the next in the next world the rambam had felt that this position is untenable and that there is no legitimate for this uh, in traditional uh, biblical literature so the rambam had spent some time in the guide actually rejecting the opinion of the Mutazilites that it is possible for a, a completely righteous and innocent person to suffer purely for the purpose of increasing their reward in the afterlife. Now, I do want to point out, before we go any further, that while the Rambam feels that this is an untenable theological position within Judaism, that people should suffer in this world purely for the purpose of increasing their reward in the next, I do want to point out that not everyone agrees with the Rambam. There are Rishonim, medievalists, that both precede and succeed the Rambam, who believed that this, what the Rambam calls this mutazalite opinion actually is something that our sages very much subscribe to. One of them is Rashi. And it is based on a passage in the Gemara that the Rambam does not quote, but I think is quite important. So we're going to see this just to be able to create a little bit of contrast to the Rambam's opinion. Amar Rava Itema Ravchista, Rava and some say Ravchista said, If a person ever sees or ever notes that he is suffering in life and he doesn't understand why, such a person should immediately scrutinize his ways. As scripture says, that a person we shall search or scrutinize our ways and we will return to God after we discover what we've done wrong. And then the Talmud says, if a person scrutinized his ways and couldn't find that he had done anything wrong, he should ascribe his suffering to the fact that he has done something wrong, not actively, but passively, and that he hasn't spent sufficient time that he could have used studying Torah. And the, the, script, and the, the Talmud quotes another scripture. Now, then the Talmud says, if, he scrutinizes his his time schedule and and is able to honestly say to himself, I have not done anything wrong and I have spent all my time efficiently studying Torah and I've not wasted any time, then one can rest assured that his suffering is a suffering of love. Now this term, Yisurin Shel Ahava, is a, a cryptic term. We're not really sure what exactly it means. But what does Rashi say as far as what this means? Rashi says explicitly that God will present a person with suffering in this world even though he has done nothing wrong. In order to increase his reward in the next world, with an amount of well-being and reward that far exceeds what he deserved because of his actions. So therefore, suffering offsets reward. So that maybe I deserve, because of all of my mitzvot and all of my merits, I deserve an 80 in Olam Haba. But if God presents me with suffering in this world and causes me to really have a very difficult life, then i'll get a 90 as far as you know the amount of reward in the next world even though through my deeds i only deserved an 80 now that if 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 rashi is not saying exactly what the rambam rejects i don't know what rashi is saying but it's clear and rashi certainly predates the rambam it stands to reason that the rambam had access at least to rashi Um, And the Rambam says that this is not a tenable position. We don't know exactly how he's going to explain, at least not at this point, how he's going to explain this particular passage in Tractate Brachot, but certainly the Rambam um, uh, has those who argue with him. Another example of a, a medievalist who comes after the Rambam, who disagrees with the Rambam, is Rabbeinu Yonah of Garondi, who, who uh, writes the Sharei Tshuva in the, I believe, the 13th century. And he writes as follows, V'cha'asher yavou musar Hashem yitbarach al ha'ish asher huzach vi'asher, that if uh, affliction is presented to a person person who is pure and upright, yehieh Sayon, it is surely there as a test, u'lahagdil z'charo la'olam Haba. And is there to increase a person's reward in the next world? Amar as it says, and I'll, I want you to look carefully at this verse that Rabbeinu Yonah quotes. It's from Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. The Rambam is going to present this with this verse shortly. He says, the Torah says explicitly that God seeks to present you with suffering and testing in order to do good with you in your end. And Rabbeinu Yonah understands that in its simplest reading, which is that suffering is now so that you will have goodness later. Okay, again, an offset of one for the other, a tit for tat. And then he quotes the exact passage of the Talmud that we just saw in Tractate Brachot, He understands it exactly as Rashi. Now, with this backdrop, that the Rambam feels that this is an untenable theology, even though we note the fact that there are other Rishonim who disagree with the Rambam, let us come to our chapter. First, the Rambam reiterates in this chapter what he's already said before, his opposition to this populist theology in that it is not properly sourced in the Torah literature, neither in the written or oral traditions, that a person will suffer in this world without deserving any punishment in order to increase his reward in the world to come. And the Rambam says this is not fair. It is not fair for a person to suffer if they have done nothing wrong. And as such, God would not be a fair God if we were to suggest this. And we know that the Torah states, "Kel emunah in that God is a completely faithful, trustworthy God without any corruption whatsoever. He is righteous and upright, nor does he say, do all the sages subscribe to this populist theology, which is a very interesting language. The Rambam seems to be implying that you might be able to find some sages, like Rashi and Rabbeinu Yonah did, who do agree that it is possible for a person to suffer without deserving any punishment. However, we have other sages who don't agree with that and I'm taking the side of those sages and he quotes the Gemar in Tractate Shabbat which says, Amar Ami, Ein yisurin below avon. It is impossible for a person to die unless he has sinned. It is impossible for a person to experience suffering uh, in life unless there has been some wrongdoing. And so he says, you see from here that at least one of the sages agrees with me that it's impossible to suggest that a person would be presented with punishment or affliction unless they had done something wrong. And then the Rambam writes that there are six places in the Torah where the idea of a test in Hebrew, we'll use the Hebrew term nisayon, is mentioned. One of those six implies this idea that I oppose, but I will explain its correct meaning shortly. And he's referring to the verse that Rabbeinu Yonah had cited in his work Shaarei Tshuva that we just saw above from Deuteronomy chapter eight, that it does, that verse does seem to imply in its simplest reading uh, that uh, a person can undergo privation and suffering now in order to get an increased reward later on, but that's not the, the correct interpretation, and I will present you with the correct interpretation shortly. So then he writes, the straightforward conveyance of an Isayon is for the purpose of discovering an individual's or nation's degree of faith or obedience to God, as we mentioned. But this is inherently difficult to accept because does not God know already what is in the person's heart? And it's especially difficult to understand the concept of Nisayon in the Akedah narrative. Now we'll see that one of those six places in the Torah, the Rambam is gonna use it as the sixth citation, even though it's the earliest in the Torah, because he wants to devote special attention to it at the end of this uh, discussion but he says it's especially difficult to sort of contain this idea that a nisayon is God is curious what is the person's capabilities since only God and the participants Abraham and Isaac were witness to it surely then the nisayon could not have been for God what would be the purpose there's no one else around to discover this information at the time of the akedah so why is God testing Avram? God already knows what Avram is capable of, and uh, and uh, the, the, for Avram to know what he's capable of, the Rambam feels that that's not worth entertaining. The texts, however, that imply that the test was administered to provide God with knowledge, are as follows. And the Rambam basically sort of accentuates the question that he knows lingers in our minds. Because there are many statements in the Torah that seem to imply that the reason why God presents a person with a test is in order to find out what that person is capable of. Like it says uh, in the case of the Akeda in Genesis chapter 22, God, after Abraham passes the test by taking his son Isaac and attempting to slaughter him, God says, Now I know, Ki Now I know that you're a God fearing man. What, God now has new knowledge? We know that that's impossible, especially for the Maimonidean God. God is completely immutable and unchanging and already has foreknowledge of what a person's going to do. So that can't possibly mean its literal meaning. Another example is in Deuteronomy chapter 13, where we're going to see the the case is that uh, God says that there may come a time when a person presents himself to you as a prophet of God and he even performs miracles in order to prove himself. But yet, then he tells you, let us turn away from the Torah of Moses, and let us not follow the commandments, or let us do something that is not contained in the Torah of Moshe. Do not listen to that prophet. Why? Because God is testing you. Why is God testing you? In order that he might know. Do you love God with all your heart and soul? So that verse also implies that God is doing this. God is presenting us with a test of seeing if we'll listen to the false prophet or not so that God might discover how much we love and fear him. So that's again very problematic because God already knows. God has foreknowledge. Why is the test necessary to educate God? God is not... God transcends education. And then a third example that he provides is once again in Deuteronomy, this time from chapter eight, where God says that when I caused you to travel through the desert for 40 years, it was, and, and pre, pre, presented you with all of this privation that is contained in the desert, no food, no water. I did this to afflict you and to test you. So that I might know et asher bilvavacha, what is in your heart, Hatishmor mitzvotavim lo, will you still observe my commandments, even though you are not provided with your very essential needs. Now, these three verses certainly seem to accentuate the problem that an all-knowing God needs to go through a process in order to discover what is contained within the human heart. That, the Rambam says, cannot possibly be the correct meaning of these verses, and so we're going to have to provide us with a modified understanding. The correct meaning and objective of the Nisayon, therefore, says the Rambam, is not so that God might know, because God already knows, but it is rather to reveal to others what they should do or believe. And just a direct quote from the Pines edition, accordingly, the notion of a Nisayon consists as it were, in a certain act being done, the purpose being not the accomplishment of that particular act, but the latter, but the latter's being a model to be imitated and followed. And what that means is, just in the simplest language, is that the Rambam's position is that the purpose of a nisayon, the purpose, anytime we find the word nisayon in the Torah as a person being presented with a test, is God wishes to educate the world the nations of the world, and anyone who is reading this biblical text, to what extent God expects us to serve him. And he does so by this nisayon, and here the word nisayon doesn't mean a test for the sake of the individual, it's not a test for the sake of the proctor of the exam, but it's a test to be able to display to others, to educate others how a person should behave how a person should commit himself, or to what extent a person has to self-sacrifice for the sake of God. And the Rambam now cites those six occurrences of Anisayon in the Torah, and provides the meaning for each citation using the above definition. So the first one he, he tackles is the case of the false prophet. And like we said, the Torah says that you may be presented with a false prophet because God is testing you to know um, do you love God with all your heart and all your soul? That does not mean that your passing the test provides God with new information, but rather that the other nations should know how much you love God. They may think, they may point a an accusatory finger at the Jewish people and say, you people do not serve God properly. And therefore God at some point in your history may present you with a false prophet who will attempt to lead you astray and through your dedication to observance of the Torah, you will demonstrate how much you love Hashem and His Torah, and therefore you will show the world that you deserve to still deserve to be the chosen people because you have gone through this test. In, the, in a similar vein, the Rambam says that what, what sometimes when the Torah says, in order to know, it doesn't mean for God to know, but it means in others, in in order for others to know, and he gives an example of this as for, uh, in in from Exodus chapter thirty-one, which talks about the observance of this of the Sabbath, and God says it is an ot beni uvenechem ladorotechem. The, the Sabbath is a sign between you, the Jewish people, and myself, God, for all generations, ladaat to know that I am the Lord your God who sanctifies you. So who is the the knower in this verse? The knower is that other nations. It is a sign for other nations that when they watch us observing the Sabbath, they will understand that there is a special sanctity of relationship that exists between God and Israel. And therefore, the Rambam's whole chidush, his whole novelty, is that the word Ladat in the verse in the uh, in the case of the false prophet and also in the case of Sabbath observance, is not for God to know, is not for the Jewish people to know, but it is rather for the other nations of the world to look on and to see and understand that there is something special between God and Israel. This is the same meaning regarding the false prophet, in that God wishes to inform the other nations how strongly you, Israel, adhere to the Torah and that you do not let yourself succumb to deceivers since your faith in God is so strong. This is also encouragement to any future reader of the Torah who seeks to uh, seeks to deeply embed his beliefs to be strong and not be daunted by miracle workers. In other words, the Rambam also acknowledges that it's also words of chizuk, of a sort of encouragement and reinforcement to someone who feels that perhaps someone in his own environment, Um, is trying to pull him away from traditional observance. Let him look at the words of the Torah and read about how sometimes God presents us with temptations um, and that no no matter how true um, uh, uh, and, uh, and legitimate those arguments of people who would pull us away from the Torah are, we can look at this passage and realize that sometimes there are going to be situations where we are presented with false prophets, and we have to know that God expects us to resist those false prophets and adhere to the tradition. The Rambam had already explained in Hilchot Yesodei HaTorah chapter eight, You can I was uh, deliberating whether to, to cite the, the text itself in the handout, but you can easily look it up, that the basis for our rejection of the false prophet despite his miracles is based on the following. Miracles are not ironclad proof, says the Rambam, since, uh, since who knows what tricks a person may be performing. Just because a person comes and says, I'm a prophet, and he performs a miracle, does not mean that he is a man of God. Because there can always be a lingering doubt that no matter how convincing that miracle seems, maybe that person tapped into some illusion or some magic trick that he performed for us but something that we see with our own eyes cannot be refuted. Um, And therefore, no matter how convincing that magic trick is, or that a supposed miracle is, if I already have knowledge of something that I've seen firsthand, that cannot be uh, um, uh, in any way dislodged because someone performs a wonder, someone performs a, a miracle. And so the point being is that if you look at the context of uh, one of the verses that we'll see in a moment, you'll you'll see that the this is the reason why God presented us with Ma'amad Har Sinai. He presented us with the events at Mount Sinai where every single Jew was witness to the giving of the Torah via Moses. The reason why it was necessary for every Jew to be a, a firsthand eyewitness to this presentation of the Torah to the Jewish people via Moses was so that if in the future, anyone would try to tell us, I am a prophet and I come from God and you have to move away from the Torah, we would know that that person is lying no matter what kind of miracle they would perform. And by analogy, he says, someone who sees something with his own eyes will know that even if two witnesses say the opposite happened, they are lying and stating the impossible. Similarly, since we saw the giving of the Torah from God with our own eyes and we saw God's appointment of Moses with our own eyes, any later supposed prophet who tries to pull us away from that knowledge must clearly be lying despite the miracles he performs. And so that's the idea of ladat to let the world know how much you adhere to the Torah. And the reason why we adhere so much to the Torah is because we received it on a, a, on a firsthand eyewitness basis. So That covers the meaning of the word Nisayon in the case of the false prophet. God is testing us not to know what we're capable of, but rather to inform the world how dedicated the Jewish people are to God and his Torah. The cases of two, three, and four of the six citations of Nisayon all have to do, are all all connected to God giving us the manna in the desert. And the Rambam basically says there are three verses in the Torah that use the word nisayon or some variation thereof in the context of giving us the man. The, man. Uh, the first one of these sites is from Deuteronomy chapter 8 that you should, God says, I want you to remember, really, Moshe is speaking here, remember those 40 years that you traveled in the desert, that God presented you with privation. Leman anotecha, lenasotecha that God did this in order to afflict you in order to test you ladaat to know what is in your heart will you observe his commandments or not and then the very next verse talks about the giving of the manna that that would that was that that in itself is the privation that you were presented with so this means says the rambam that God wanted the world to see that those who follow God faithfully are privy to divine miracles of sustenance even in the barren desert again not a lesson for god not a lesson for the jewish people but la the word la in that verse means is to inform the world that if you follow god faithfully it's sort of teaching a lesson to the world look at the jewish people as an example they followed god faithfully in the desert and god came um, forward for them and and provided them with miraculous food And therefore, anyone who follows God with complete and absolute dedication and self-sacrifice when they are called upon to do so, God will follow through for them and will save them and provide them with their needs whenever they call out to him. And that's really what the man represents and it's a lesson to the world. That's what the word nisayon means over here as well. Um, The next citation also having to do with the man, but it's in Exodus chapter 16, when the Jewish people are first presented with the man, God says to Moshe, I'm going to rain down bread from the heavens, let the people go out and gather their daily ration, so that I can test them, will they follow my Torah or not? And it's not, again, it's not that God wants to uh, find out how much faith the Jewish people have, But here too, the Rambam says, the meaning is that God wished for the other nations to consider through witnessing the Jewish people, whether or not it was worthwhile to follow the Torah. Laman anasenu is that God says, through the Jewish people, I will make known to the world whether or not it's worthwhile to follow God's command. I'm telling them, go out every day, take only the, the the amount that you need to sustain yourselves for that day, and you will see that if you place your trust in God, God will provide for you. The same meaning as the previous verse. And then number four the, is also this reference to, the third reference to the uh, to, uh, a nisayon in the context of the man, is in Deuteronomy chapter eight again, but later on in that chapter, it says hama achil bamidbar, that God fed you the man in the desert that your ancestors did not know in order to afflict you and to test you, to do good with you in your end. Remember, Rabbeinu Yonah had also used this verse. As we mentioned above, one of the six citations, this one seems to be plainly stating that God presents suffering to an individual who was without fault in order to increase their reward in the end. But this is not the correct interpretation. The real meaning, says the Rambam, is twofold. Firstly, it means like the previous two citations about the manna, that people in the world will witness through B'nai Israel's experience that faithfulness to God pays off in the end, in other words, in that despite being fatigued, we were eventually granted the manna to alleviate our fatigue. So that's the correct way, the, the, the correct reading, says the Rambam, is that god gave you man in the desert in order to afflict you so that he might make known to the world that if a person sticks with the program and follows god faithfully even though initially it may be painful and that there may be deprivation but nonetheless there will be a payoff in the end and that god will come through for us for the and for anyone else who follows god's plan it may be painful initially but eventually in the end god will alleviate our fatigue and will make sure that we are cared for and taken care of so that's the um that's the correct reading the same as the previous two verses but then the rambam says that there's a second meaning of this verse as to what it means that god tested you because the word nasotecha could also not necessarily mean a test but it could mean something else because it could also mean that god wanted to accustom you to suffering to privation and he gives another verse in deuteronomy where the word nisa does not mean testing but rather means to become accustomed to the torah is teaching a principle that when one is subjected to privation and suffering the gift they receive after that privation is more savory and enjoyable. Hashem wanted Bnei Israel to encounter the land of Israel out of a state of privation, so that they would appreciate it and relish it that much more. And that's another read reading of this verse, that why did God present you with privation in the desert? Lama'an nasotecha, to accustom you to deprivation, so that when you do finally encounter the land of Israel, you'll say, amazing. And it's not like you'll say, oh, what's the big deal? A land we've already had a great, a great life up until now. Hashem wants you to be genuinely excited when you encounter the land of Israel, and that's why he caused you to exist in privation in the desert before coming into the land. Furthermore, he wanted them to realize that there was no better place for them to go so that they would be motivated to fight for it all the more. And then he writes that, he, and this is a direct quote from the text, for prosperity does away with courage, whereas a hard life and fatigue necessarily produce courage, which is the meaning of Khabe be'achariteche. God wanted to do good with you. He wanted you to be excited and passionate about the land when you finally would come to it. And he also wanted to make sure that you would be a dedicated army to fight for the land of Israel because if god would have given you a pampered and luxurious life in the desert you would not be motivated to fight hard to acquire the land of israel when god presents the jewish people with suffering we become fierce warriors we've just seen this since october 7th that the way to become completely dedicated to the cause of the people and the state of israel is through suffering and without that suffering uh, uh, it, uh, I think the argument could be made that the uh, Tsahal, the, the army would not fight as ferociously as it is fighting now. So that's the argument that the Rambam makes over here, that that's another way to read the verse for uh, <clears throat> to understand why God presented you with privation, such as the manna, when you were traveling through the desert, so that you would appreciate the land all the more, and that when it would come time to fight for the land, you would, you would fight with, with all of your strength. Okay, so we've seen the three verses of the man. We saw the one verse of the false prophet. Let's look at verse number five that has the word Nisayon in it, is at the time of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. In chapter Exodus chapter 20, it says, Vayomer Moshe el Ha'am al-tirau. Moshe said to the people, do not fear, after they saw all of the thunder and lightning, and they were really filled with a sense of a real dread, (laughs) because God has done all of these, you know, sound and light, um, uh, awesome uh, spectacles in order to test you. (laughs) And secondly, so that your fear will be on your face, so that you not sin in the future. Now here too, the Rambam says, the Torah is explaining to the world the extent of your faith, which is predicated upon your eyewitnessing the events at Sinai. In other words, when it says Nasot, that God is testing, he's demonstrating to the world the source of your complete faith. Why are the Jews such faithful believers in the Torah? Because they saw it with their own eyes. And that's why God wanted you to be here today, because he wants to show the rest of the world how strong your faith is. It is an an unshakable faith because it is predicated on ma'amad har sinai. Uh, That this is the connection to the subsequent phrase, so that your fear will be on, the fear of God will be on your faces so that you not sin in the future. That is by virtue of the fact that your faith is deeply embedded based on what you have witnessed firsthand, you will never come to stray from God even if a false prophet performs a miracle for you as per above so therefore uh, the the whole idea is to connect this verse of the nisayon at the time of the giving of the torah to the nisayon of the false prophet they really go hand in hand they really are you know complementary of each other why did god present you with the spectacles at mount sinai so that he can show the world that your commitment to God and his Torah is unshakable, such as when a false prophet comes to you, that nisayon, that demonstration of your faith will be that much more manifest because of the events at Mount Sinai. And finally, number six, the Rambam talks about the Akedah and gives it special attention. It says, Clearly, by the Akedah, the very first verse of the Akedah, chapter 22 of Genesis, the Nisa'et Abraham, God tested Abraham. There are two great concepts contained in this narrative that are fundamental to the Torah, states the Rambam. Firstly, this verse teaches to what extent a person must express his love and fear of God. When we consider this story we have to realize that it required of Avraham to sacrifice far more than his assets or his own life. It's hard to fathom any human being being capable of doing what he did to take the child of his old age after having previously uh, given up hope of having a child and killing the person whom he believed would be the progenitor of the chosen people. The child that would be the father of the chosen people being willing to kill him and sacrifice his life, because God commanded him to, this demonstrates the tremendous dedication and love and fear and awe that Avraham had of God, and that is why it is such an important narrative in the Torah. It is there to demonstrate to all readers, the other nations of the world and future generations of Jews, to what extent a person who fears and loves God has to be self-sacrificing. Abraham, and and the Rambam goes even into greater extent, I'm not using all of his language. He did not hesitate, however, and he did so only after days of journeying. This demonstrates that this was not an impetuous act without thought, but rather performed after much deliberation and forethought, which demonstrates the deep extent of Abraham's devotion. Abraham did not perform the act of the Akedah out of a fear of retribution. We have no indication that God threatened him that if you don't do the Akeda, I'm going to do all these terrible things to you. It does, never says that in the Torah. So we, we conclude that the reason why Abraham did this is purely because of love and reverence, not because of a fear of what would happen to him, solely because of his great love and fear of him. And that is why the angel stated afterwards, ki atayadati ki now I know that you are a God-fearing person. This means that through your act, not that I know God, it's almost like that now I have notified the world, I have made it known throughout the world, other nations will know to what extent they should revere God. This idea that the fear of God is the ultimate ultimate calling for any theist is emphasized in the Torah, that the ultimate objective of the entire Torah is to revere God, not to fear punishment, not to uh, be motivated by any other ulterior motive, but purely out of the fear and reverence of God. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if you do not observe all of the commandments that are written in this book, for the sake of revering God, that that's really the ultimate objective of all of these commandments of the Torah. That's sort of the underlying theme is that God wants you to follow the Torah to demonstrate your absolute reverence and love of him. So that is the sort of the key lesson of the Akedah to all future generations of man, that you see from this narrative, from this story, to what extent a person has to make ultimate sacrifices for the sake of God. Then the Rambam says that there's a second fundamental lesson that is so key to um, uh, the student of the Torah who wishes to really understand the whole objective of the Torah this narrative teaches the clarity which a prophet with which a prophet perceives his prophecy one should not think that just because the words of prophecy are combined with a vision that there is any ambiguity in the message and we refer you back to section two um uh, uh, you know um back in um chapter 41, where the Rambam had described the mechanics of prophecy, that it is a message accompanied with a vision, and there are different variations of what kind of prophecy. One might, after reading about what a prophecy is in the narrative, get the false impression that sometimes a prophecy could be somewhat ambiguous and unclear. There could have been no ambiguity or lack of clarity in Avram's prophecy, for him to go ahead and take that prophecy and use it to attempt to slaughter his child. Rather, a prophetic message is just like information arrived at by solid logic or by the physical senses. Just like if you saw something with your own eyes, you would believe it and commit yourself to that experience. Avraham committed himself to the message that he received in a prophecy as if God were standing right in front of him and telling him to do it in the three-dimensional world. The significance of the Akedah is so great that it fittingly occurred through Avraham, the father of all the Jewish people, because these two lessons, number one, the lesson of to what extent one must dedicate themselves to God, and number two, what prophecy truly is, the clarity of prophecy, those are two things that are fittingly transmitted through a narrative having to do with Avraham, who's the father of all the Jewish people. Avraham was the first human to profess monotheism, to establish prophecy and to perpetuate and propagate this theology. And that's why the Torah says about him that God you know, told Avraham that what he was planning to do with the people of Sodom, because I know that he's going to give charge to his entire household and family and all future generations. Hashem And that through Avraham's instruction, all future generations of jews are going to know what is righteous and upright so that god can bring upon Avram and his descendants what he wishes to do so it the, the rambam is basically explaining this clearly demonstrates why these two lessons are so important and why they're being transmitted in a narrative about abraham because abraham passes down such a rich legacy to the entire nation it is only fitting that his experience be the one that most firmly establishes the clarity of prophecy and the extent to which one must dedicate oneself in love and fear to God. And so, just to conclude the chapter, it is in this way that the meaning of tests should be understood the word nisayon. It should not be believed that God, may He be exalted, wants to test to try out a thing in order to know that which He did not know before. Right, We know that, that can't be true about God. How greatly is he exalted above that which is imagined by ignorant fools in their evil thoughts know this. In other words, do not be deluded uh, to um, and, and led astray by people who tell you that God tests people so that God could discover what they're capable of. That's ludicrous. It's antithetical to anything that we've already explained about God. And here again, the Ramvam strengthens his view of an immutable, unchanging God as he has done from the very beginning of the guide. Now, uh, that's the end of the chapter. I just wanna leave you off with one simple idea. We have seen that the Rambam dispels the notion that a test is in order to provide God with any new knowledge. We've also seen the Rambam um, dispel the notion that it is in order to give someone a greater reward in the afterlife Even though the person did not deserve to to be presented with suffering, they nevertheless are so that they can um, be presented with greater reward in the future. Therefore, the Rambam had to come up with a whole new idea of what a test is, which, you know, boiled down to its most simplest phraseology is that a test is for the purpose of notifying the world and all future generations of man the proper conduct, what God expects of a human being, a servant of God. That's the purpose of a test, not for God, not for the individual, but sometimes I may actually be suffering, not for my own sake, not because I deserve the punishment, but because through me, I act as a vessel that God can use to, uh, to, to present the world with, with, with an education. But consider the opinion of the Ramban Nachmanides, whose interpretation is not taken up by the Rambam. And the Ramban, in very terse words, in his introduction to the story of the Akedah says as follows. And I'll just read it very quickly in Hebrew. Inyan hanisayon huladati. You wanna know what I think anisayon is? Babur heyot ma'ase ha'adam rishut muchletet biado. Every person has free will, we know that. That's something the Rambam feels is such a, a basic um, a fundamental idea. And therefore, any time a person is presented with a prospect, he has free will to either do that thing which he is called upon to do or not do it. And therefore, it is called a test, but only vis-à-vis the person who has free will. But the tester, Why then? that God, does God test, God knows what I'm capable of, why should he present me with a test? Because God wants me to take the latent abilities that I have and make them actual. And the, the basic idea that the Ramban presents us with is God wishes to increase the righteous man's reward. And so therefore, even though God knows that this righteous man Abraham was going to be prepared to slaughter his son Isaac, he nevertheless told him to go through the motions of doing it so that God, Abraham could be rewarded not just for his good intent, not just for his the goodness that was latent in his soul, but also for his good deeds. Because when a person acts properly, they are given a greater reward um, than one who just thinks and intends properly and because God wishes to increase every righteous person's reward he will sometimes present a person with a so to speak nisayon a test in order to change from the potential to the actual in order to bring that activity to the fore so that God can increase the reward of the individual it is a very intriguing prospect it's curious as to why the Rambam doesn't even undertake this as a possibility of what a Nisayon is, but nonetheless, I leave that for you to, to ruminate over um, and to think about what, where the Ramban's definition of a test uh, would fit into the Rambam's rubric, uh, because he clearly has a very, very different idea of what a Nisayon is. But the bottom line is that with the conclusion of this chapter, we've put to rest the idea that God is in any way unjust and that really is the theme of this whole in- section of the guide that god is hatsur tamim paalo his acts are all pure and righteous he will never present a person with suffering for no reason he will sometimes do it in order to provide an education to the entire world even and and will sometimes also do it in order to uh, like we saw in the case of the um of the jews and the man in the desert to make sure that we appreciate the future that much more. But there was always a righteous reason why a person is presented with privation in life. Um, but the primary reason being is to demonstrate to the entire world a very important lesson. Okay, and here's where we'll, we'll stop it for today. Uh, look forward to seeing you next time when we'll do chapter 25 and conclude this entire section. Take care now, everybody.